Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 through 30. While you're turning there, I want to extend a very special greeting this morning to um, almost uh, 81, actually there is 81, uh, perspective, uh, not perspective, but high school students who are here for our Truth in uh, College conference where they are being uh, exposed today to various ideas that they will encounter in college and how they can prepare uh, to be ready for college as they move from high school into that particular world. And so if you would give them a warm Southeastern greeting, thanking them for being with us today. And as I was thinking about this text this morning, I want to say to all of you, I think there's probably no more relevant text for what you're going to face when you move into college. Uh, because you're going to be confronted with new ideas and new concepts. In many cases, if you go to a state university or state college, you're going to find a rather hostile context uh, when it comes to living out your Christian faith. And so the book of Daniel is very helpful, and in particular, Daniel chapter 3. Cassie Bernal was a teenager who was martyred. Uh, on April the 20th, 1999 at Columbine High School just outside of Denver, Colorado. She was 17 years old. Several reports of the fatal shooting, in fact, 11 classmates and one teacher were also killed, suggest that when one of the murderers, Eric Harris, approached Cassie and asked her the question, do you believe in God? She answered, yes. And he immediately shot her in the head and he killed her. Cassie's decision to take a stand for Jesus, like what we're going to read this morning in Daniel chapter 3, was not a spur-of-the-moment decision with no chance for reflection or to consider the potential consequences. No, it was a decision that she had already made and settled in her heart long before that fateful day. In fact, in a letter that she wrote to a friend that was given to Cassie's mother, following her murder, her martyrdom, her mother read these words from her daughter to her friend. When God doesn't want me to do something, I definitely know it. When he wants me to do something, even if it means going outside my comfort zone, I know that too. I feel pushed in the direction I need to go. I try to stand up for my faith at school. It can be discouraging, but it can also be rewarding. And then she closed the letter with these words, I will die for my God. I will die for my faith. It is the least I can do for Christ dying for me. It's popular to talk today uh, about what we call courage under fire. But in this passage, I want you to see three men that had courage in the fire. And their faith is absolutely amazing, and their confidence in God is absolutely stellar, worthy of every one of our emulation. 
I like what the missionary George Verwer said, we who have Christ eternal life need to throw away our own life. And we see this in these three men from Judea, these three Hebrew men, they were willing to do just that. And as a result of their willingness to give away their own lives, we have one of the most remarkable stories in all of the Bible. As we walk through Daniel chapter three, I want you to see five movements to this story this morning. Number one, God's people will be confronted with the idols of this world. We see that in verses one through seven. God's people will be confronted with the idols of this world. Look at chapter three, beginning with verse one. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image. Now, in hermeneutics, we know that we look for key words, we look for repetition, and so you'll see that the word image occurs, uh, image occurs no less than 11 times in this chapter. Ne King Nebuchadnezzar, made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up, a phrase that occurs nine times on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent together the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and the herald proclaimed aloud, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down, a phrase that occurs 11 times in this chapter, you're to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace, mentioned 10 times in this text. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshiped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Daniel chapter 3 follows closely on the heels of Daniel chapter 2, though we have no way of knowing exactly how much time elapsed from chapter 2 to the event of chapter 3. Uh, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, says that Daniel 3 took place in the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, which would have made it about 587 or 586, which does correspond with the third deportation of Judean uh, nobles and uh, Judean uh, aristocracy, as well as the king and others into Babylon. And of course, it is also the time when he destroyed the temple and burned down the walls of Jerusalem. We can't be sure, but it is possible that this is actually a celebration of what he had recently done to the nation of Judah. Uh, Daniel, back in chapter 2, had interpreted Nebuchadnezzar's dream. 
And there he had told Nebuchadnezzar that he was the gold head of that particular statue and that it was an indication that he indeed would rule over and he was indeed ruling over an awesome and powerful kingdom. But we need to understand he was only the head of the statue. He was not the remainder of the statue. In other words, his kingdom would be a great kingdom, but his kingdom would not endure. Now, Nebuchadnezzar paid homage to Daniel and to Daniel's God at the end of chapter 2 in verse 46, but it was shallow. Uh, It was surface. Uh, There was nothing real about it. Oh, he could speak uh, the language of um, Daniel's faith, but there was no reality there. And so as a result of that, in chapter 3, we see Nebuchadnezzar's true colors come out. And the fact is, he didn't accept God's will, that he would only be the head of the statue. He wanted it all. He, He wanted to indeed have a kingdom that in his own warped mind would never end and would endure forever. And so what does he do? He builds himself a great gold statue that in our terms would be 90 by 9 feet. It was gold-plated from head to toe. It probably looked like a missile uh, on a launching pad. Or if you want to get something we can all identify with, think of the Washington Monument. And that is probably the way this particular uh, image looked, this particular statue that he constructed. Again, the Bible is very clear in emphasizing the idolatrous nature of what we're seeing here in chapter 3. Now, we don't know. Did he build it to uh, honor his God Marduk? Did he build it to honor his God Nabu? Did he build it to honor himself? Uh, We don't know, although my suspicion is he probably built it for all the above. Yes, he was building it to honor his gods, but he was also building it to honor himself. And it is now setting up a major showdown with these Hebrew men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. In fact, Dell Davis in his commentary on Daniel says it exactly right. This story is first commandment material. The writer holds before you this episode because he wants, to, uh, wants uh, you to make the same response as Daniel's friends. I will believe and obey the first commandment even if it kills me. Well, it is that kind of pressure that is put on these three Hebrew young men, perhaps by now young adults, but when they were exiled to Babylon along with Daniel, they were teenagers. They were your age. They will never see their parents again. They will never go back to their homeland. They are put in a school for three years in the Babylonian educational system to deconvert them from their commitment to Yahweh, to the Lord, and to embrace the gods and the way of life of the Babylonians. And notice the pressure as it builds on them as you walk through these verses. I've got to see at least seven things I can note very quickly. Number one, this statue was set up in a unique location on the plain of Dura near the city of Babylon. Verse one, uh, this recalls, of course, the story of the Tower of Babel that we read about back in Genesis chapter 11 and verse 2. It seems that the intent of both are the same, to unify all the nations and all the ethnes of the earth. Secondly, in verse 2, the who's who. 
Uh, the movers and shakers of Nebuchadnezzar's vast empire were invited to the dedication service. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, all the officials are invited. That is reemphasized again later in these particular verses. Thirdly, Nebuchadnezzar sets a specific and precise moment when national and religious allegiance to him would be put on public display with verse three telling us everyone was expected to participate. So this is a service of national, political, and religious unification. Number four, there's going to be great and emotional music to accompany the moment of dedication, adding a powerful, a psychological component to the service. We see that in verse 5. Fifthly, a precise moment is specified for the time of submission and worship. That's also noted in verse 5. Six, there's a death warning to anyone who refuses to fall down and worship, as we see in verse 6. Seventh, when the moment of commitment came, it appears, at least to this point, though we're going to read the rest of the story, that everyone present pledged their allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar and his idolatrous image. Now, what we need to be reminded of this morning is simply this. We too will be confronted with the idols of this age. Uh, our life may not be on the line here in America, though that may change sometime in the future. It is certainly the case for brothers and sisters scattered all around the globe. Uh, some of these challenges to, to bow to the idols of this age are quiet. And they're subtle. Uh, no one really knows what's going on except you and your heart. And yet other times we are confronted with the idols of this age that demand our public allegiance. Uh, that demand that we give a public uh, display of our commitment to what is going on. And let me remind all of us again of what the Bible clearly teaches. And let me be crystal clear here, and I don't need to stay here too long, but this world, it is not our home. And let me be more specific than that. This nation is not our home. We are exiles living in a foreign land. And when you hear such talk that tries to identify America, for example, with a new Jerusalem or tries to put America in some type of privileged status in the eyes of God, you're listening to a theological fool. That is not what the Bible teaches. Do we love our nation? Absolutely. Do we serve our nation? Absolutely. In fact, when you work through Daniel, one of the things you discover is nobody served Babylon better than Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They were promoted again and again. And at the end of this chapter, we'll see them promoted again into the higher levels of governmental influence under God's sovereign purpose and plan. But it is crystal clear they never saw Babylon as their home. They always longed for that place that God had prepared for them. No, number one, God's people will be confronted with the idols of this world. Number two, God's people will be criticized by the people of this world. Verses 8 through 12, look at it with me. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans, the word Chaldean and Babylon, uh, Babylonian is used interchangeably throughout uh, the book of Daniel. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans, certain Babylonians, uh, they came forward and they maliciously accused the Jews. 
And they declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Their names are in their Babylonian pagan context, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, number one, pay no attention to you. Number two, they do not serve your gods. And number three, they will not worship the golden image that you have set up. It is not always popular to honor and obey God. In fact, sometimes honoring and obeying God can get us in serious trouble and even life-threatening situations. Just simply trying to be faithful to Him is simply not going to cut it with those who oppose your God and think you to be a fool. Text tells us when the time came to bow down and, verse 8, worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, well, three men very conspicuously remained standing, verse 12. Now, take note of this, brothers and sisters. There was no fanfare. There was no outburst of protest. It was simply a quiet act of civil disobedience. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said no to the king of this world that they might say yes to the king of heaven. Well, their enemies had been waiting for a moment like this, and the moment it arose, they jumped and they moved quickly into action. It says there are certain Chaldeans, the NIV says, certain astrologers came forward at that particular moment. These are probably rivals to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We can't say that for sure, but I think it most likely that they were not happy that uh, King Nebuchadnezzar had promoted these Jews. Do I think there is a strand of anti-Semitism running through this text? I certainly do. And so they were angry, they were jealous, they were envious of the positions that these men had been given. And so as we'll see in Daniel chapter 6, the same thing happens to Daniel. They find and look for an opportunity to seize upon these men, and they are given a golden opportunity at this very moment. So they step forward, and what does the text say there in verse 8? They maliciously accused the Jews, literally in the Hebrew text, It is, they ate their pieces. They ate their pieces. We would say today, uh, they chowed down on them. Uh, They ate their lunch. Uh, They sunk their teeth into Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, their approach to the king is something that you would expect the serpent to motivate and move people to do. They begin by buttering him up there in verse 9. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, You live forever, which was a common way of greeting the king, but certainly they were setting the stage for what they were about to do because as soon as they make that statement of praise and affirmation, they give him a backhand in terms of his handling of his kingdom. Verse 10, you, O king, you made a decree that every man who hears the sound of all these things shall fall down and worship the golden image. 
And you said, whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Verse 12, the hammer drops. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, they pay no attention to you. They just blow you off. They do not serve your gods and they don't worship the golden image that you have set up. And so basically they're saying something like this. These boys are your boys. Uh, Did you hear what they did not do? Did you see what they did not do? They don't think uh, what you say is important. They don't respect you and, and who you are. They don't serve your gods. By the way, on that one, they were correct. And they do not worship the image that you have set up. And again, on that particular accusation, they were correct. And so the idea of the king setting up his idol, a phrase that appears seven times in this passage. It's interesting. It stands in stark contrast to the one who really does do the setting up. You see, that phrase, setting up was applied to Yahweh God back in chapter 2 and verse 21. Our God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Well, in a real sense, you can see the contrast between the true God and the false God, the God of heaven and this piddly God of the earth, Nebuchadnezzar. He's trying to take the position in the place of God. He's trying to do the things that God does. And so there's a, a, a showdown that is clearly being set up at this point between the one true God and the false God represented by this statue, this image made by Ebuchadnezzar. The critics see uh, the Hebrew children taking a stand for God and boy, they call out the king. And the king now has a dilemma. He's got to do something to save face. Uh, He's got to do something that indicates that when he says something, you better jump and you better hop. In fact, the question you ask when he says jump is simply how high. And so we have the stage set. Now, keep this in mind. If you're a student of Daniel back in chapter one and in chapter two, he has honored these three men along with Daniel. Now, what is he going to do when he is faced with this situation, which leads us to our third movement? God's people will be challenged to worship the God's of this world. Look at verses 13 through 15. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, second chance. If you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I've made, well and good. Everything will be forgiven. Everything will be okay. Just a little getting your act together, just a little compromise here. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And then one of the most important questions in all the Bible Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Brothers and sisters, people who do not have convictions will not like you and me when we stand for our convictions. They will do their best to lead you to compromise. They will do their best to lead you to give way. Perhaps on some occasions, it's just giving up a little bit. I mean, what's the big deal about 
same-sex marriage? Why would you want to impose your ideas on another? Why would you want to impose your ethic on another? I mean, after all, if they're not hurting anybody, not bothering anybody, what is the big deal? And over and over and over in our lives, we get faced with that question, what's the big deal? Why don't you just give a little bit? Why don't you just compromise a bit? Nobody will get hurt. Everything will be just fine. Now, I'll tell you something. It takes great courage and great conviction not to compromise when you are pressured. And let me tell you this, you need to settle that issue in your heart and mind far ahead of when the moment of truth comes. If you wait, for example, young lady, to that moment of truth when it comes to maintaining your sexual purity and fidelity, it's probably going to be too late. Now, that needs to be an issue. Same is true for you guys, too. In fact, even more for, so for you, because you should be protector of women, not abusers and taking advantage of women. That should be settled in your heart and mind long, long in advance of when the hormones start raging and you find yourself in a moment where you may not be able to control your passions and make a decision that you indeed may regret for the rest of your life. No, those moments need to be decided way before the moment of truth. So Nebuchadnezzar has set up his image. He's now angry at these Jewish resistors. He says to them, I'm going to give you a second shot, but if you do not bow, then you will be thrown into the fiery furnace. And so they simply are being asked to uh, disobey their God, to obey this pagan king. And as a result of that, we are set up for a showdown, which leads us to our fourth observation. God's people must be courageous in the face of danger in this world. Verse 15 raises the key question in the text. Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Well, here comes the answer. Shadrach, verse 16, Meshach and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Uh, the facts are clear. Our actions are indisputable. Here's the bottom line. If this be so, that is, you're going to throw us into a burning, fiery furnace. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And we are indeed confident he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, one of the greatest statements of faith you will ever find in the Bible, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, keep this in mind. God calls some of us to go to the nations to share the gospel. But in our day and age, we now have the wonderful blessing to see God bringing the nations to us that we might share the gospel. Now, think about this scene. We have learned already from this text that there are people at this grand worship service from every tribe or, or every people, every nation, and every language. God exiled these three Hebrew teenagers, now perhaps young adults, to do what? Bear witness to him as missionaries. You say they didn't go of their own free will. No, but they went according to the sovereign providence of God. And so there they are in the most powerful city in the world before the most powerful leader in the world, before the most powerful nation in the world. Every 
language, every people, every nation represented, and now they get to bear witness to their confidence in and their trust in the one true sovereign God of the universe. Notice what they say there in these verses. Three things. First, we will not bow down to you. We will only bow down to our God. Secondly, we will trust in God's sovereign purpose no matter what. And finally, we will trust in God's power and God's protection, and we will leave what happens to his providential plan. In other words, they had no question about God's power. They simply did not know God's plan. But they knew this much. If it is God's will to deliver us, we will be delivered. And if it is not God's will that we be delivered, it does not matter. We will not bow down and we will not worship your image. I love the footnote that you find in the ESV study Bible on verse 18. I quote, there was no doubt in the three men's mind as to God's power to save them. Yet the way in which God would work out his plan for them in this situation was less clear. God's power is sometimes extended in dramatic ways to deliver his people, as when he parted the Red Sea for Israel on the way out of Egypt. At other times, that same power is withheld, and his people are allowed to suffer either way. They would not bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's image. Nate Saint was a missionary to the Aka Indians who was martyred along with Jim Elliott and others in 1956. But his willingness to die for Christ should not surprise any one of us when we consider these words found in his diary. And I quote, the way I see it, we ought to be willing to die. In the military, we were taught that to obtain our objectives, we had to be willing to be expendable. Missionaries must face that same expendability. And I would simply add to what Nate Saint said, that every follower of the crucified Nazarene should have that same sense of expendability. Fifth movement, God's people can be confident the Lord is with them no matter what in this world. Verses 19 through 30 contain for us the conclusion of this story. Let me just do what we call a running commentary as we move to close our study. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the Bible says, was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. That simply is probably a figure of speech saying, heat it as hot as you can possibly get it. So he ordered some of the mighty men of his army, his army rangers, if you like, to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Well, these three men were prepared to be uh, barbecued because they were bound in their cloaks, which would only, of course, burn immediately like that, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Now, understand, most likely this device or this, uh, this furnace that they were thrown into had two openings. It had an opening at the top and an opening in front. So what they would have done is gone up on top, which is why they probably got uh, barbecued themselves with all the heat coming out, and they dropped them down into the fiery furnace, and then Nebuchadnezzar and all of his boys could sit there or stand there and watch as they were consumed by the fire. So they go up on top, drop them down, and then they're watching, all right? So verse 22, because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, 
The flame of the fire killed those who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And then these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound. Now, I cannot help but note this. They've been told over and over and over, you need to fall down and worship this statue. Well, they did fall down one time into the fiery furnace because of their stand for their Lord. Verse 24, then Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. That, by the way, is one of the Bible's great understatements. And he rose up in haste. Why? We declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered then and said, well, uh, there's a problem. I see four men, not three, and they're not bound, they're unbound. And they're walking around like they're in a park in the midst of the fire, and they're not even hurt. And furthermore, the appearance of this fourth one, well, he is like a son of the gods. Now, later in verse 28, he will say that God sent his angel to protect Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And that's not a bad guess for a pagan king, but I think there's a better answer. Now, Bible scholars, this is where they get paid their money for writing books. They want to debate this. And some say, well, you know, maybe it was an angel. I don't think so. Others have said, well, it's a theophany, an appearance of God. That's on the way to the truth. I will just tell you personally, I think it's a Christophany. I think the person in the fiery furnace with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And the one who did not keep them out of the fire met them in the fire and then took them out of the fire. And so verse 26, Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the most high God, come out and come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire and the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the king's counselors gathered together and they saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had even come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar has another spiritual experience, though not a conversion. He answered and said, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who had sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies. I love this. This is Romans 12, 1 and 2 all over the place. They yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I'm making a decree. He likes to make decrees, by the way, any people, nation, or language. So we saw a missionary moment back in verses 4 through 8. We see another missionary moment right here. I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb. Their houses laid in ruins. That, by the way, is a very polite translation. Their houses will be made a dung hill. It will become a place of refuse. And for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. He's not denying his polytheism. He's simply saying, I've never seen a God like this one. Now, there are other gods. I'm not jettisoning all of my gods. I'm not giving up on Nabu or Marduk, and I'm not going to tear down my great statue, but I will acknowledge I haven't seen anything like this before. You think? You think? And so because of that, verse 30, the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. 
And the story comes to an end showing us that when we stand in conviction and refuse to compromise, when we stand with our commitments and refuse to run and, uh, and, and hide or run and give way, God is faithful and God honors us. I like what Charles Spurgeon said, Beloved, you must go into the furnace if you would have the nearest and dearest dealings with Christ Jesus. I like that. You must go into the furnace if you would have the nearest and dearest dealings with Christ Jesus. These Hebrew men did exactly that, and they experienced exactly what Spurgeon said would happen. You see, keep this in mind. When you walk into a fiery furnace of whatever nature it may be, don't you ever forget that Jesus Christ is already there, and he's already there waiting for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this very uh, well-known story. I'm moved by it every time I read it because, Lord, I have to be honest. In some ways, I'm so much like Nebuchadnezzar, not Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, Lord, I have the idols of my life and the idols of my heart. I sometimes think that I am the commander of my own destiny. And I do think that I have the right to get my way over your way. And yet, Lord, I don't want to be where Nebuchadnezzar stands. I want to be where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stand, even if it is in the fiery furnace. Lord, I believe with all of my heart that your will for our lives, it may not always be safe. It certainly wasn't for these three men. But, Lord, I do believe with all of my heart that your will is always best. So, Lord, even if it cost us something in this life, may we with all of our hearts seek your will, knowing, as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, it is good, it is acceptable, and it is perfect. Why would we want to stand anywhere other than there? For your glory and for our goodness, may we be faithful like these three Hebrew men. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.